Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. This week, there's a lot of news relating to January 6th. The House Select Committee subpoenaed Donald Trump and a federal judge sentenced Steve Bannon to four months in prison for defying a committee subpoena. Meanwhile, in a new ruling, a federal judge wrote that Trump included false allegations of voter fraud in a Georgia lawsuit, despite being informed by his lawyers that the data was incorrect. In other news, DOJ prosecutors involved in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation reportedly believe that there is sufficient evidence to charge Trump with obstruction. It remains to be seen whether Attorney General Merrick Garland will move forward with the case. And special counsel John Durham suffered another defeat in court. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com insider. That's cafe.com insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. Well, Trump's subpoena isn't the only thing going on with January 6th committee. We still have pending Congress's subpoena to John Eastman for all of his emails. And we got a little bit more news about that this week, where Judge Carter in California, federal judge who's considering whether or not to enforce the subpoena against Eastman, decided that there was a crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege and ordered a small number of additional emails turned over to the committee. What did you make of that? Look, it's, it's an example of a judge saying, again, that there seems to be some likelihood that a crime was committed, which doesn't lead to a crime being charged, because in this country, judges don't file criminal charges against individual defendants. But it does lend some support and grist and persuasiveness to the Justice Department's investigation, generally speaking. And allows them to be arguing in court and in other places, and perhaps to a grand jury eventually, that a crime was committed here. Here you have someone from the independent judicial branch making a conclusion that's quite serious. So I think it's not a small thing. Yeah, the procedural point you make is a really good one here. This has no impact on whether or not Trump gets charged down the road. The reason that the judge is making this finding that Trump participated in crimes is in essence, that's a finding that's necessary to make evidence available to the January 6th committee. And and by reflection, that evidence will now be available to prosecutors. And some of it looks to be pretty damaging. It's information that John Eastman, Trump's lawyer, is giving Trump. And then the follow-on to that is criminality by Trump. The most interesting, in my mind, specific piece that the judge flags is that 
after Trump verifies, and, and there's this procedure when a complaint is filed in a civil case where the plaintiff can actually sign off on it, in some cases has to, and they sign an, an attestation that the facts in the complaint are true to the best of their knowledge and belief. Trump does that in the state case in Georgia challenging the election. Then in these Eastman emails, he's advised that some of the facts that they're using about voter fraud, this, this traditional Republican litany of voter fraud in elections that says dead people voted and unregistered people voted and, and people who weren't qualified voted. And Eastman says the numbers are wrong and the president shouldn't sign this again. And he does it again in the federal case after learning that these numbers are bad. So that could have separate implications in a criminal matter. But for our purposes here, it just means that these emails are available as evidence for prosecutors and the committee to use. Yeah, and just some of the specific things that Judge Carter wrote are very helpful to have in the public record for purposes of justifying DOJ's interest in pursuing this criminal investigation. And also, by the way, the committee's interest in getting to the truth here Judge Carter, in writing specifically about the crime fraud exception and its application here, talks to Trump and Eastman's, quote, efforts to delay or disrupt the January 6th vote, end quote, end quote, their knowing misrepresentation of voter fraud numbers in Georgia when seeking to overturn the election results in federal court, end quote. And then finally, the judge found that four separate emails demonstrated an effort by President Trump and his attorneys to press false claims in federal court for the purpose of delaying the January 6th vote. That's significant. It is. I mean, that's the core of a criminal conspiracy that a lot of people have thought DOJ might bring, a Klein conspiracy under 18 U.S. Code 371, which essentially says if you join into a conspiracy to interfere with important government functions, then you're committing a federal crime. And, and Judge Carter certainly seems to believe to be on board for prosecuting that case. Yeah, maybe we can make him a special master or something. <laughs> you can't really do that, folks. That was a joke. That was a, a very nerdy legal joke. You know, I just can imagine what's going on at the 11th Circuit as they talk about the whole process with Judge Deary. And they're like, you guys, if we don't shut this off, they're going to be asking for special masters in every criminal case going forward. It's going to be nuts. It's going to ruin our docket. Yeah. Isn't that happening? Aren't special masters being requested right and left? You know, I mean, it's it's like either Trump is above the law or everybody's entitled to one following a search of their premises, right? Yeah, I think it's only country clubs. <laughs> if the premises are a country club, then you get a special master. And, and you have to own it. It has to be a country club that you own. The Trump rule. Yes, it has to be in Florida. No, okay. Should we talk about that thing that we mentioned earlier, Mr. Steve Bannon? That Bannon thing. Bannon's ultimately going to go to prison, it looks like. Well... There's still some doubt about that for a reason we'll discuss in a second. So people will remember, I think people are following the story closely. Steve Bannon referred for contempt of Congress, indicted for contempt of Congress, two counts, refusal to provide testimony, refusal to provide documents. He was convicted at trial by a unanimous jury. And the sentencing took place last week. Now, remember, he was definitely going to be sentenced to some jail time because each of the counts carries a mandatory minimum of 30 days. So once he's going to go to jail for some amount of time, the question is, how much? As we've discussed before, probably the sentences were going to run concurrently. So the max he was looking at was a year. And so the range was really a month to a year. But the sentencing guidelines, which are not mandatory, came into play. And the guidelines for someone like him with his criminal history was six months at the top end of the scale. 
the department asked for six months. I thought that was not unreasonable, and he could have gotten that. What did he get, Joyce? Four months. He got four months. four months from Judge Carl Nichols, who didn't always seem to be on board with this prosecution, is I think the fairest way to say it. Although ultimately he ruled in the government's favor on some key issues, which is why Bannon has what Bannon believes is a live issue on appeal. And that actually set him up to get a very unusual bond, an an appellate bond, so that he remains out of custody while the appeal is underway. I mean, ordinarily, I mean, we should go back and review a couple of basic things of how federal criminal prosecutions work. The question of, of whether you are in custody or not at the time a charge is filed depends on a finding of whether or not a defendant who's been charged with a federal crime is a risk of flight or a danger to the community. And even though you're presumed innocent in certain circumstances, you can be in custody and be held in a jail or a prison, right? Then you go to trial with the presumption of innocence and you're convicted or you plead guilty, which also means you're convicted. In certain circumstances, even if you've been free on bail, at that moment, the government can move to remand the defendant on the grounds that the government sometimes articulates, not always, but sometimes articulates, that now that the person is convicted, they are a greater risk of flight. And so we shouldn't wait until sentencing and they get remanded now. On other occasions, and probably the most common situation, is that upon conviction, a sentencing date gets set. And between the time of the conviction and the sentencing date, there's a pre-sentence report that's prepared and submissions are made by both sides. It's usually, you know, three to four months in the federal system can be shorter, it can be longer, particularly if there's a cooperating witness who's the person who pled guilty. And then people make arguments about what the sentence should be. And particularly in a white-collar case, the defendant remains free on bail until the sentencing. And then at the time of the sentencing, some of the time you get remanded to custody then. And Joyce, you correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, because it's been a few years. You're doing good. But also, often it's the case that even at the moment of sentencing, You don't go to prison that day. There's a surrender date, particularly if the place you're going to be sent to prison is far afield, not close to where the person lives. But what is very, very rare is that at the conclusion of the trial, the sentencing process, the actual sentencing being imposed is what happened in this case, which is a stay of the sentence pending an appeal made by the defendant. Usually that's done in very, very rare circumstances if there's a good reason to believe that the defendant might prevail on appeal. I don't see that this is a great issue to prevail on appeal. When you said earlier that he looks like he's going to prison, some people think that may not be so. How is that going to play out? Yeah, I I think it does look like he's going to prison. I don't think that this issue is an issue he prevails upon on appeal. It's Let me say it's not a certainty, but my read on the law here is that it's very unlikely That should have informed this process that you're talking about. The appellate lawyer in me always has to say that this issue of whether defendants get a bond or not, it's governed by statute. And once you've been convicted at a bare minimum, the statute says that the judge shall remand you to custody unless the judge is convinced by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is not a flight risk or a danger to the community. I, I think in, in practice, defendants are treated with a little bit more leniency than the statute might suggest. And this practice of letting people report to the facility that they've been assigned to, rather than being transported courtesy of the U.S. Marshals, 
is of benefit both to the defendants who may not want to go through the Marshall Service luxurious transportation pool, but also it saves the government money. So it's sort of a win-win. Where we are with Bannon, though, this notion that you get to stay out on bond after you've been convicted and sentenced, this is very rare. And it is reserved for cases, for the most part, where there's maybe a split in the circuits over an issue of law, some really tough call on the law where the trial judge isn't entirely certain that they've got it right. The government sometimes will be on board for release in these cases, but there's that burden on the court to make a decision with clear and convincing evidence that there's a substantial issue. Here's what Bannon says his issue is. He wanted at trial to be able to rely on this defensive advice of counsel. My lawyer said I didn't have to show up to comply with this subpoena. And the law is pretty clear that you don't get a reliance of counsel defense when it comes to a congressional subpoena. That seems very cut and dry. Bannon argues that the case law is a little bit equivocal. Maybe there's some wiggle room, but there's no real reason here to believe that the Court of Appeals or even the Supreme Court would want to change this rule, because if they did, it would just focus on miscreants like Bannon being able to manufacture a defense and further weakening the already weak ability to enforce congressional subpoenas. Yeah, and look, the irony is going to come to pass once again, as we've already addressed, in just a few months, if the Republicans take back the House and or the Senate. They're going to be issuing subpoenas to a lot of Democrats, And if it becomes the case that you can very easily assert the defense that my lawyer said I didn't have to come testify, and you don't come testify, lawyers will routinely tell their clients they don't have to testify. And the Republican gavel-wielding chairman will get very upset, forgetting the example of Steve Bannon, whom a lot of them support at the moment. So this is going to be an interesting, what's good for the goose is good for the gander issue. You say it so nicely. I was thinking karma's a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's another way way of talking about it. But, you know, we're at an inflection point where very quickly we could swing the other way. And people can't be as sort of blasé about defenses that they think are appropriate because they're not going to want those defenses to be able to work in just a few weeks, potentially. So listen, I'll I'll bet you dinner right now that the Republicans will have an enormous case of amnesia if they retake control of the House. And, And none of the arguments that they've made about witnesses who don't need to come and testify will apply to the hordes of Democrats that they'll be issuing subpoenas to in week one of the new Congress. So just before we leave Steve Bannon and all the procedural sort of complications and issues, Bottom line, sentence of four months. I find that to be reasonable. The government asked for six. I thought that was also reasonable. A range of between three and six months seems to me, given the history, given the nature of the offenses charged and given precedent, seems fine to me. And I think a lot of people were upset. They didn't get more, but given the circumstances, seems fair to me. What about you? I think that's right. The guideline ranges aren't mandatory, but they do try to create some sort of uniformity between similar conduct and defendants with similar criminal histories. And I think here it's not worth quibbling over a couple of months. So I guess this is the week we get to talk about witnesses who don't want to come testify. (laughs) I have another example of that. Our friend, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, was issued a subpoena. This one not a congressional subpoena, 
but a subpoena from the Fulton County DA's office. The grand jury. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. And to the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.